Hey guys, welcome to Break the Chain. I'm sat here today with Acharya Das. Acharya Das is a respected teacher of the Vedic and Yoga philosophy, meditation and kirtan, and is a practitioner of the transcendental science of Bhakti Yoga. Acharya has been teaching meditation for 45 years. Um, I met him at the local uh, meditation program, which I think I'm very fortunate to have run into him. Um, not everybody will understand what I just said there. Um, can you explain to people uh, how you went from living in New Zealand to um, living in India and how you ended up on the path that you did? Okay, sure. I was a pretty average kid, I guess. Um, grew up in a really small town, only about three and a half thousand people, uh, farming kind of community. But when I was quite young, I, I was, I grew up in a somewhat religious family. Um, but sort of really felt like I wasn't getting the answers that I needed. There was a lack of, of depth and, you know, quite a lot of stuff I couldn't really accept. I, 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 I kind of was aware that maybe these guys didn't have the answers, not that the a higher purpose, a, a spiritual existence wasn't real. I knew that was real, just innately knew that to be a reality. So um, when I was about 14, I stumbled across uh, some books on yoga, which was kind of like pretty far out in those days. And I started practicing what was called Ashtanga Yoga and meditation. And I was pretty much focused on sort of the more mystical kind of stuff, you know, having out-of-body experiences and all that kind of trippy things. And then when I was, um, uh, somebody introduced me to, to drugs. First was just marijuana and then a bit of cocaine. And um, I, I started dabbling because I sort of concluded, of course erroneously, that it would somehow give me greater spiritual insight because it seemed to be more sort of mystical and opened up the possibility of there being a hell of a lot more going on than I was aware of. But I was, I was pretty much um, quite, quite focused on, on the pursuit of, of yoga, trying to find out who I really was. You know, I, I just had this understanding that this body that we have on is not who we are that there's a, a somebody inside there looking to be free, as it were. And uh, I, I had a lot of ups and downs in the sense that I was really looking for somebody that could help me and give me direction and guidance. Um, the idea of a, a guru, a, a holy man, a spiritual person. And in my youth and inexperience, I had Anywhere where I heard there was some heavy people hanging out or some heavy dude, I want to go check them out and spend time with them. I, I was already having some quite mystical kind of experiences. And when I sat down and talked to some of these people, I knew that they were just talking. And sometimes I knew right away, sometimes after a couple of weeks of hanging around with them on and off. You know, I sort of saw through things and realized that these people were often talking about things they had never experienced and some of the stuff I had experienced. And so it kind of brought me to this place where I was thinking, well, in the end, shit, nobody knows, everybody's guessing. Um, I, I began dabbling a lot more heavily with um, with mind-altering substances, um, tried just about everything. I didn't really like the downers and I didn't really like the heroin and stuff. I mean, I, I think the people that are more drawn to that are people that are they're feeling a lot of pain in their life. Their existence is just filled with pain or emptiness or fearfulness. They just want to hide from that. It's like crawling into a dark, safe place you know and so I, I, that's not what I wanted I wanted something that kind of expanded my mind and experience try to learn more so I was sort of more drawn to the uh, hallucinogenics 
and um, I've always been a little bit of an extremist. The last time I took acid, I dropped about 38 tabs. <laughs> so I was a little on the wild side. <laughs> yeah, wow. You know, but I, I really did conclude that um, after a while, I'm just getting stoned for the sake of getting stoned. It wasn't really providing me any deeper insights other than some initial ones that I had. And there had to be, you know, a, a more real way of finding real answers. Who, who am I? What the, what the hell is this all for? What, what purpose does things serve? What am I meant to be doing? And, and who am I? I don't even actually know who I really am. So, um, you know, I, I just continued that um, down that path of really searching. I decided to become a Trappist monk, thinking that if I was um, living in one of these rural communities that Trappist monks and they're fundamentally vegetarian. And I brought a few marijuana seeds with me and they, they live in these rural communities out in farms. I plant some seeds and a little yeah. stash in a nice little room you know, that perhaps some period, somehow, somewhere in my life, I would receive some sort of like divine grace or inspiration and come to some realization of really what it's all about. But I ended up going to Australia and in Australia, I sort of bumped into a couple of guys wearing robes um, who had come out to Australia from America and were teaching the path of, of um, bhakti and um, one of them I thought was just a brilliant person. He was so nice. The other one was a total dick. And it was kind of <laughs> a bit of, bit of a contrast here for me. But um, hanging around for a few months, my uh, spiritual teacher, my spiritual master, came out to visit Australia. And that blew my mind. I mean, I'd never met a more real and compassionate and incredibly intelligent person. It was, to me, it was obvious. He was a very saintly personality. And when he left, he was only there for about nine or 10 days. I decided I just couldn't stay there on my own. It was too much. And I um, fundamentally just ripped off a drug dealer and got a little bit of money and got myself a one-way ticket to Australia, uh, to, to India. And I showed up in India on a one-way ticket with $14. It was kind of like a do or die, you know, wow. trying to find, find the truth, you know, the reality and truth. So I lived as a monk there for a, a couple of years, about two and a half years, and um, often ended up just walking the byways and highways, traveling to sacred places and looking for inspiration I guess and and to deepen my spiritual practices my own spiritual master had been a tremendous source of comfort and um, insight uh, and it was just so amazing for me to to have that kind of exposure and experience so after living as a, a monk in India and and it was like extremely austere um, and you're exposed to things that you've never seen in the West before, like the Bangladesh war was on. So I was living out in Bengal for a period at that time, like 10 million refugees came across the border, people living in railway stations on the side of the road, just encampments without tents or anything, food. You see dead bodies every day. You get up in the morning to go somewhere, you just encounter dead bodies all over the place. People just dying from disease and lack of food. And it was just like a really hardcore dose of, of reality and people living in, in such austere conditions. And um, it really made me rethink a lot of things. You know, I, we grow up in a society where we only have one perspective and we think that's the that's everything that there is. And, and there's, a, there's an amazing world out there and there's an amazing amount of experience and things that we've never encountered. And people living very difficult and challenging lives, but yet in the face of adversity, being reasonably happy and being able to get on with stuff. 
because there was always a sense of purpose and direction. So um, I, I sort of met up with a, a friend, a guy that was um, became like my mentor and friend. He was a, a Swami, where he was from Canada. And uh, he went out to the Philippines to open an ashram out there and invited me to, to join him and help out. So I went out to um, the Philippines uh, when I was 20, 22. Um, I mean, left New Zealand when I was 18. And um, I lived there for quite some time. Um, teaching yoga and meditation. When, when you say yoga, can you explain what that means? Because obviously when I started this, I didn't know that it wasn't a middle-class women's business model where mums go and do sort of like exercises at yeah. lunchtime. Yeah, interesting question. Unfortunately, that's become the, the um, you know, what most people in the, in the Western world think is yoga. In fact, most of the world think is yoga. Now, even in India, people think that that's yoga. The aspect of, of physical exercise, if I can put it that way, you know, strengthening and stretching and all that kind of stuff is a tiny, tiny part of what's known as yoga. Yoga is fundamentally for the purpose of self-realization, the realization, the discovery of who I actually am as a spiritual being and to, to experience the reality of that and then to be connected to something that is infinitely greater and higher and more amazingly spiritual and profound. Um, that relationship, that connection with this higher reality is really what yoga is all about. And even in the ancient process of what's called a, a, Ashtanga, Ashtanga means eight hunga, is like the eight limbs of yoga. The, Physical exercise asana is just a tiny little part. It's like one eighth, but it's not even one eighth. It's less than one eighth of of you know what the rest of the processes are about. So there are different paths of yoga, um, jnana yoga, which means you know the the use of of the intellect to try and find what is true and what is real in this life. Um, Sankhya yoga where they really question the difference between that which is spirit and that which is matter. From the yogic point of view, in this world, there's only fundamentally two types of energy, material energy and a spiritual energy. The symptom of the presence of that spiritual energy is life. Anywhere where you see life manifesting, it's because of this, this spiritual energy being, being present. The material energy is, is astonishing. And the way the, the yogis would look at it was like mind-blowing. They, they knew that fundamentally there was an, a, a foundational building block in matter. Today we would call that like electrons, protons, and neutrons. And if we accept that, that those are the fundamental blocks, of course there's subatomic particles, but those are the fundamentals, then if I look at chocolate, it has neutrons, protons, and, and electrons. Exactly the same elements can come together another way and form dog shit. And so the yogis saw that there was really, not, not just hypothetically, they say it's a dream state to be walking around and being attracted to certain types of things and repulsed by other kinds of things. And all the while that you're doing that, you're just totally absorbed in the thought or the idea that the body is me. That's who, that's who I am. There's no other reality than that, and which is not true. And when you live in that, that dimension, you're just constantly doing things to stimulate the body and the mind, but you always come up empty because none of that, touches you and the core of your your deeper being yeah so i think we're already touching on my main question was um my main question was going to be why do we suffer i mean you some people look at one group of people or one type of person and think they have the perfect life or they have the perfect family 
but having personally been on so many sides of the fence, it's like the grass is always greener, you know, you're looking at something, thinking that's the perfect thing, and then when you get there, it's not, you're still suffering no matter what. Like if you're rich, you're suffering the taxes, if you're poor, you're suffering from starvation, or, you know, it's on both sides of the fence, there's always suffering. So my question is, why do we suffer? wasn't expecting to get to this place so quickly. It's a very profound question and um, one that's always completely amazed me. One of our um, spiritual teachers in our lineage, his name was Sanatan Goswami, uh, and this was back in the 1500s, about the time of, of um, the Renaissance. He had come from an extremely wealthy family, born into great privilege. Um, he had become a high-ranking member, like the equivalent of like a prime minister under a Muslim emperor in Bengal, and then later gave everything up to seek an understanding of what it's all about. And he encountered and met up with his, his spiritual master, who was known as Chaitan Mahaprabhu, a great spiritual personality. And one of the first questions he asked him in, in this encounter is, why, why am I suffering? Why do we suffer? And their understanding of suffering was like far more far out than ours. They have three words, Adi, Adi Atmik, Adi Adibodic, Adidavik. Adiatmic means suffering due to my own body and mind. It's sort of one category of suffering and come, can be, you know, exist on a whole different levels of magnitude. Adibodic is the suffering that comes from others, whether it's an insect biting me. Um, something that's invaded, a pathogen that's invaded my body and now I've got typhoid or malaria or some really crappy disease. Um, or whether it's my neighbor or, or the, the bloke next to me that won't share a joint or the one who stole my stash. <laughs> you know, this all the myriad of sufferings that come from others. And the third, they call it Adidavik. It means natural forces like excessive heat, excessive cold, rain, earthquakes, all these kind of things that are beyond beyond our control. So they, they understood that there was a, a, a wide variety of, of suffering. And something that we really need to get a grip on really fast. There is no perfect life in this world. So like lighten the fuck up. I really... <laughs> Because there's no perfect life here. You know, my wife's brother, he came from a very wealthy family in the Philippines. He was a really handsome guy, good looking. He was really buff, into diving, and he had his own businesses. He, he was super popular, had a fantastic personality, and, you know, and he ended up shooting himself. And his big problem was he falsely thought that everybody else is happy and that other relationships and people with families and that that's all kind of like somehow they've got some they're experiencing something that's perfect and whereas my life is shit I'm totally empty I'm totally alone you know it, it, this is a spiritual condition, not a material condition. It's not bad to feel this way. It's not, not bad. It's, it's, a, it's actually a good thing because then it becomes an inspiration to ask, so what, what is it all about? What, what should I be doing? Is it possible to get beyond the different types of suffering in this world? And of course, the answer is yes, that when we grow in a deeper understanding of our spiritual identity and we're living that reality as a spiritual being inhabiting this body and this body is going to go through crap 
you, you think life's a bummer now, you just go through the aging process. Go hang out in an old age home where people are bedridden and they, you know, it's like you've gone from a baby who couldn't feed itself and can't control its bowels and it's shitting and urinating all over itself and being totally dependent on its parents and those around it. And then you go through this whole cycle of growth and, you know, maintenance and then decline. And you end up back in the same place again. That's the natural cycle. Don't try to fight it. That's crazy land, trying to fight it, trying to pretend it's not going to be like that. We have this desire for happiness and a desire for things not to end because we are spiritual beings. It's part of our spiritual nature. But when we've lost the plot and forgotten all about that and just totally become immersed in the body as being who I am and seeking to find fulfillment only through that vehicle, you're going to end up with a proverbial shit sandwich. Sorry. So when you say that we're not the body, what then are we and why are we here? The first part of the question is a lot easier than the second. Not easier to talk about, but easier for people to understand. The body is not a person. All you've got to do is be with someone that has died. And the instant, the instant somebody leaves the body and all that's left is an empty shellless body, it instantly becomes, feels unclean and unattractive. Even somebody that you loved very much. I mean, you just don't really want to be around it. Not really. You're overwhelmed with shock and fear and confusion and in feeling that, wow, well, I need to show respect, you know, to the memory of my friend or my parent or something. Those things are all there. But inherently, you feel that the body has become something that's incredibly unattractive. It re re repulses you. The thing that attracts you in, from a, to a live body is the fact that there is an eternal an amazing spiritual being within. That is the source of life. That is the source of personality. That's who, who we are. But we have lost touch with that, with that reality. And we are trying to live out a vain hope that we can find some perfection in this temporary material world and this temporary body that we're in, that we can find something of enormous value. You know, I, I'm not saying one should turn their back on the world and reject things. I'm saying we have to be realistic. Half of the suffering that people go through is because of having unrealistic expectations, thinking that this world is my home, that there is a perfection to be experienced here. There is a completeness of love and all these things, you know, that are contained within this world and with material personalities. And it's not true. It's absolutely not true. And so the spiritual path is to seek the reality of who I am and to reconnect and live that and to begin to be more focused on a spiritual journey with spiritual experience. You know, you asked earlier about suffering and I'll, I'll tie it into this one. In, in the Vedas, you know, they teach about reincarnation, which is more accurately should be transmigration of the soul. Transmigration of the soul means that at the time of death, a person generally is going to end up taking another body, another birth. When a child shows up, people think of it as being just innocent and pure and new. And no, it's not. That little dude shows up with massive amounts of baggage from previous lives. All kinds of good and bad karmic results from things that they've done. They bring with them certain types of desires and conditioning and everything that, you know, carries on life after life. In, in 
third world countries and you know God, you're seeing it now even in America I don't know what it's like in the UK you can see in, in, in intersections you know where people get a red light and the cars are all there and somebody's knocking on the window begging and when you go to the third world whether it's Africa Asia wherever you've got people that are in deplorable state raggedy ass dirty just and and they're really having such a hard time and they could be standing at the window of a car a mercedes-benz and inside there's some guy with his ipad doing his whole trip and he's got a driver he's off to some big corporate position that you know he owns something or works somewhere and so he's seen to be living a life of privilege from the perspective of a saintly person he sees those two people as being in the same boat and that any time they're going to be able to change places just automatically as one progresses through this cycle of repeated birth and death. And so suffering, you know, is perceived as being the attempt by the eternal spiritual being to find fulfillment in this world where it cannot be fulfilled. And so you will suffer because of that. And the other one is because one is cultivating and maintaining material desires, one will repeatedly take birth and they will go through all the different species. They will go through all the different stations in life. And that's the ultimate in, in suffering. You think you got it bad now? It can get much, much worse. And when a person is even in the most deprived and deplorable state, if they have begun the process of self-realization, of spiritual activity and the meditation which awakens us to who we really are, our spiritual identity, one can be experiencing boundless joy in that and feel free from all the anxieties associated with being in difficult physical situation. So the second part of your question, I said was actually a bit more difficult, a bit more difficult not to talk about, but for people to understand and appreciate. Your suffering will be directly connected or proportionate to how self-centered you are. This is what is known in the Vedas as being the ultimate spiritual ailment that has infected everyone. I mean, we've got how many billion people on the earth now? And every single one of those people see themselves as the center of things. I talk about my life and I see everything related only to me. I don't feel deep empathy for other people that I have no, even if I see them, I don't feel like I've got any connection with them. And I, I, I don't feel their pain. I don't feel their suffering. Whereas the great spiritualists, you know, they're profoundly impacted by the great suffering of all humanity, not just human beings, all living beings. They have this deep empathy because the suffering is unnecessary. And it occurs because we basically want to be like God. We want to be the center of everything. It's all about me. It's all about everything's about me. I'm just, you know... And, and this means that we live a life more of taking than of giving. When people learn to give, to give of themselves, to be helpful to others, to show, to be charitable, to show kindness, even to greet someone. I mean, somebody living on the street. I mean, how bad does it feel to be living on the street you think those people have no dignity no they do they feel like they're at the bottom of their life they feel like they've been robbed of of humanity 
and people don't even look at them. People don't even notice them. And if you bend down and say to someone, how you going, mate? I know, I know you're having a hard time, but it can get better. And just more than giving them something, just acknowledging them as being people and connecting can sometimes people will just cry because they're just sitting there and everybody, the world is moving by and they feel like they're in this deep, dark hole. People in severe depression, you know, are in that sort of space also where everything is shut out. I don't see others. I can't hear others. I'm not connected to others. It's all just about me. That's, this is the consequence of living a self-centered life. And the way to break out of that is, is by, you know, just basic stuff that you can do is to reconnect. You see somebody in that isolated, withdrawn condition, forcibly drag them out. Come on, we're going out, going for a walk. Even if we're going down the pub, even if we're going to a movie, or just go sit in the park or walk around. We're walking. We're not, we don't have to talk. I'm not going to preach to you. I'm not going to harass you. We, but we're walking. Because you're, you're my friend and I care about you. And you need to get out and walk and breathe. Let's do it. You know? I mean, just that, that level of reaching out ourself helps us so much. Because we ourselves are living in that self-centered existence. The problem is when that self-centered existence becomes so desperate, when you actually feel so isolated and unfulfilled, can be like everything is just closed in on you. And there's just you in this deep, dark hole and, and, and nothing else. So this self-centeredness, is at the foundation of all unhappiness and all suffering. There's a, a brilliant organization in, in the UK. I'll just try and look it up here. Um, it's called, I think, Actions for Happiness. And their website, I think, is, is actionsforhappiness.org. And um, they, ca they came up, they're, they're academics. They're from universities, psychologists, sociologists. They're not on any kind of religious trip or anything. And they, they listed like four things that are absolutely essential for, for people's happiness. And what they're proposing is all based on research and data. It's not, you know, just something somebody's dreamt up or whatever. And... Um, one of the things that they're promoting, I'm trying to look for us madly here. Um, one of the items, I mean, they talk about the, the three top items that we can each affect our happiness and the happiness of those around us. I'm not going to go into detail, you know, if you want to check out you know, the stuff that we've got up online to try and where we talk about this stuff and might find it might find it helpful helpful. The second thing is we need to prioritize the things that cause happiness. I mean it's just amazing the idea that there are things that can cause happiness, can can bring a person to a happier existence. Not perfect, but definitely happier. But the third one was particularly um, for me, it was really impactful. Helping others is essential for a happier society. And they lead up, under that, they lead off with self-centered individualism is not the route to happiness. Helping others is, of course, good for their happiness, but it also makes us ourselves happier and healthier too. Giving connects us together, provides us with a sense of meaning, and makes us more accepting of ourselves and of others. I mean, there's so much truth in that. It's not, it's not the perfect and total answer, but you'll find that for people that are trapped, particularly in the cycle of addiction, um, 
where it's very much become all about me, you know, to, to just, it's so exaggerated, the whole thing about being about me. I don't even recognize other people's existence practically. I definitely don't connect with hardly anyone. And to begin to take even tiny steps that move us away from that self-centeredness into just acts, small, tiny acts of kindness and sharing with others is utterly transformative. And the reason it's so transformative, it is the nature of the spiritual being to be in relationship, spiritual relationship. This is the meaning of the word yoga. It is our nature to be a giver and not a taker. This taking mentality where it's all about me and I'm sucking is, is this is the formula for the greatest amount of unhappiness that you can experience. And it, and it lies at the foundation of much of the reason why people commit suicide in order to es try and escape unhappiness. Uh, just while we're on the, t on the subject of addiction, obviously that's, um, that's really what led me to this path. Obviously I'm a drug addict and been trying to uh, get over that for a long time. I mean, after spending six years sober and realizing that even after spending six years sober, um, doing everything that I thought would make me happy, sort of staring sobriety in the face and realizing that it's cold and empty, I mean, obviously, you used drugs as well when you was younger. I mean, what, why did you stop doing that? Um, what was your main purpose? I mean, with, with drugs, yeah. I know that when I'm doing drugs, all I'm thinking about is I'm taking some pleasure for me. That's going to make me feel better. And it's all self-centered. It's the same with uh, earning money. I mean, that could be done for both things, but often I'm earning some money for me so I can buy something nice. Um, I mean, it's the same with every sort. When, I, when, I, when you say it makes you feel good or gives you pleasure, idea. Yeah. What, what do you, how would you express that? How would I express feeling good? Yeah. I would probably have gone and bought some drugs. It's an no, idea, what, it's what a is, false idea. Yeah, what is it that you're feeling that's so good? This is a deep question. I mean, in reality, it's always unfulfilling. Every so every time I've gone down this avenue, it's based on ignorance and it's ultimately led to unhappiness. It, it basically pretty much led me down the my life of autopilot, autopilot life of taking the easy path and trying to feel good, uh, self-centeredly, and it basically was going to lead me off a cliff if I kept going in that direction. You know that question I asked you what is the good feeling that you feel if you had to actually put it in words most people have actually not thought about it very deeply and they are sort of um, just glossing over stuff the reality is that when you take drugs it temporarily, temporarily relieves the emptiness, purposelessness, and the distress that you're feeling. When you're getting high, you're not thinking about those things. If you do, you become incredibly suicidal because it's just like magnified so much. But generally, it's, it's a switch off, especially people that take heroin, or they're into the downers and things. People that take methamphetamine, it's sort of like a whole nother direction, but it's fundamentally doing the same things where you just switch off the emptiness, the pain and suffering and are absorbed in a temporary state where you're not feeling that pain. And you say, this is great, this is fantastic. But you can't stay there it doesn't last and it's way more complex than that because every time you do that 
it makes your situation worse. It's not just drugs either, is it? Can you expand no. on that? I mean, yeah, it's yeah, all, abso all, absolutely. All addictive patterns. All, all, all addictive patterns, you know, whether it's somebody totally addicted to being a, a, a football hoon, you know, to somebody that's totally into any variation of sexual activity, um, pornography, um, food, you know, and you can choose anything. And become so totally absorbed in it that for some time, moments, minutes, hours, it's like you have become forgetful of all the rest of the pain in your life. You become forgetful. So my, my spiritual master, my guru, he used to liken it to like in the olden days, you know, in, in the UK, Europe, it was pretty common to... Um, they had what was called a dunking stool, and they used to, you know, it's like a chair on a on a on a long uh, pole, you know, with a fulcrum, and uh, they strap somebody in it as a punishment, and they dunk them under water, and when they're underwater, and at the point where they've just totally run out of breath and they're just going to inhale water, they yank them up out of the water, and it's like, <gasps> and then all of a sudden. Down again, you know, and then the whole of their breath, and they're just struggling and freaking out. And just when they're going to lose it out of the water again, you get another breath of fresh air. For a person in that condition, that breath of fresh air is unbelievably happy, it's a relief. Whereas <laughs> the common person is breathing every day, and it doesn't make any difference to them. It's really all about the fact that there is momentary forgetfulness or momentary relief because of forgetfulness of my suffering condition. And that, that is really a drive. If you really think about it, you know, and, and uh, observe it closely. Uh, from the yogic perspective, the path to self-realization, to really reconnecting with my deeper spiritual self, I have to understand that I'm actually encased in two bodies. One is this gross physical body, and the other one is called the, the subtle body, the linga sarira. This subtle body is pr principally composed of the mind, and what's called the the intelligence and the, and the false conception of who I am. And we understand from, from yogic teaching that the mind can be one's greatest friend or one's greatest enemy. Your own mind can become a greater enemy to you than anyone or anything else. And that's a stunning idea. That's just, that's like mind-blowing. Because we lie down with our mind, we embrace our mind, we live in our mind. Anything that it thinks, we accept to be true. We follow it everywhere. And in, in the use of any form of intoxicant or any form of addictive behavior, what it does is it strengthens the hold of the mind over you, the spiritual being. It makes it so you are less able to even appreciate this principle that I'm an eternal spiritual being. What to speak of trying to really find myself, connect with something more meaningful and deeper and profoundly pleasurable, real spiritually pleasurable experience. And, and so when you do this stuff, it just strengthens the mind's grip and control over you. It's like you're being held hostage by a terrorist. My situation, I was completely powerless. Yep. It turned me into somebody that was completely undesirable to my family, to my, well, most importantly to me. Yeah. <laughs> I, like, I, I was undesirable to myself and yeah. I'd, um, well, the yeah. thing is, the thing is, um, and, and you said something earlier I was going to comment on, uh, but I'll, I'll comment on it now, is the concept of me this mind 
and how shitty it can become, how fucking evil or horrible or self-centered. And my body are not me. And when I embraced them in their worst manifestation as being me, my God, you're going to feel absolutely, you know, everything's pointless and, and there's no hope and there's no way out. But if you could begin to actually understand and contemplate upon, meditate upon the fact that I'm an eternal spiritual being and the current, my current mental state, my mental condition, my physical condition, even in the depths of an addiction, is not me. I've surrendered to that and I'm thinking that is me. And so I will feel horribly depressed. I will see no redeeming quality in myself. I'll see nothing worthwhile in myself. And that's bullshit. You're an eternal spiritual being of infinite worth and value. But you've relinquished. You've relinquished your position and just become absolutely subservient to the, the mental and physical state as being everything and what there is. You can find yourself. You can regain, you know, this appreciation of your deeper spiritual being. There are processes to do this. All of it requires some effort and endeavor, but it's not unnatural. It may be difficult in the beginning. For some people, it may seem that way. But, you know, it, it's these activities that we do, you know, the singing meditations, kirtan and stuff. I mean, God, does it get any easier than that? No. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, you can even be stoned and, and do that and it's going to help you. So um, it's, it's not that there's no way out and it's not that I have no value. I have, I have enormous value. But when I tether the idea of my value, I tie it to some crappy situation I'm in physically and mentally and think that that is me and that's all there is. Oh my God, that's hopeless. And so it's really important for people to hear the message that, you know, that's not you. That's a condition that you're in. You become overwhelmed by your state of consciousness, you know, your mind and your body. But that's not really who you are. And you need to start digging deep. You need to start reconnecting with your true self. That's the only way out of that horrible, dark room. So for people in a completely hopeless situation, I mean, obviously we've mentioned that one thing you can do is uh, relieve self-centeredness and try to um, take your focus and sort of branch out as, as far as possible so that we can try and include as many people into our service as possible. Um, Obviously, you mentioned Kirtan meditation, which is something that I've been doing with you, which, um, I mean, you can explain briefly what it is. I mean, when I started doing it, it seemed mental. Yeah. I turned up on the, on the program, and um, so I turned up at a meditation retreat that uh, the hot, um, Meditation New Zealand was running, and I had no idea what to expect. And the meditations, essentially, it's singing. So there's a, there's a band or someone's playing an instrument and um, singing mantras, um, but the, the idea of, um, it reminded me of being at church in a way, you know, you turn yeah. up and everybody's singing uh, hymns and stuff, and even back then at school I didn't sing, because I, I don't know, I just didn't connect, connect. and my voice, I, it's never been something I've been especially fond of, so, I mean, singing, I was just like, yeah. and it took me around two days of that program to actually well, I started singing and then I, was, I didn't even sing, I didn't know what the words were and I started putting other words of being silly, like almost taking the piss because I just, you know, trying to yeah. trying to make it be a bit cool or something, I don't know. And then I started singing in a funny voice, like a bit of a punky voice, trying to make it a bit cooler. And after like two days, I just I just let go of that thing. Like my, my ego just let go of my ego and I was just like, oh, I just started singing. And, and, and how did it feel? It felt great. Yeah. You know, just to be like, I was just thinking, God, if my mates at home could see me now, yeah. you know, now I'm talking about it, I don't give a shit anymore. But yeah. I, I felt so good. You know, yeah. I didn't understand 
the, the science behind the whole thing, but I, even, even just getting over thinking and worrying about what other people would think of me and letting go of that yeah. old idea of myself. Um, but obviously with the mantras, there's so much, there's so much more behind what they actually are, isn't there? So I'll just address the first part of what you were talking about there, you know, ways to get out of, of the space that we find ourselves in. And I'll, I'll reference that organization that I was telling you about, the Actions for Happiness. And they put out, you know, a calendar pretty much every month. And they've got sort of like, I'm back in May, it was like meaningful May, you know, and every day there's like one thing that you've got to do. You got to look at their calendar and one thing and then think about it in relation to your own life and try to do that one thing every day. And they did things like do something meaningful for someone you really care about. And when you hear that, that sounds like the first time when I first looked at this, I thought, oh, this is a bunch of corny shit, you know, it's like, but then I, I looked at it and I kind of thought about it and analyzed it. and. Being that these guys are all academics and stuff, this has come from a pretty deep place. And from the yogic perspective, doing something meaningful for someone that you really care about. First of all, you've got to identify, okay, who's going to be that person that I really care about? And to do something meaningful means not meaningful for me, meaningful for them. And if I'm going to do something meaningful for them, I'm going to start thinking about well, what are they like? What do they value? What's important to them? And it could be something as simple as, for instance, with my own mum, going up to her, giving her a peck on the cheek and saying, you know, sometimes I'm a real dick and I don't appreciate how much you actually really care about me and how much you do for me. And I'm really sorry about that. That would blow your mum's mind. <laughs> and she would be incredibly happy. Um, and it's not just about validating her and what she's doing. She's happy because, my God, how did you come to that thought? What's happening to you? She'd be happy to see such a change. You know, so just using that for an example. I mean, when you, when you take any of these things and you, you, you think about what it means and you think about it a little bit deeply, it really takes you out of this whole world where I'm the center of everything and I'm forced to start thinking about others. Um, take interest in people who are older, younger, or different than you. And it's like, shit, I've just known my mates, you know, and uh, somebody older or younger, or different than me, I've got to go and show, take some interest in them. Like say, you doing okay? You need a hand there getting across the road or whatever. And that's just like, that puts you in a whole different world. And so there's just like an, a nonstop, um, you know, list of stuff. You know, they've got to get outside, look at the sky and feel connected to the natural world. That's one place druggies don't want to be unless you're into hallucinogenics, you know, all other kinds of drug taking. You don't really want to be connected with nature. And the idea that you can, in awe, like when I was a kid, lie down on the grass and just look at the clouds going by and just be mind blown. That you can take a whole lake full of water, evaporate it out of the ocean into clouds, it can go over land and come down as a deluge somewhere. That's just like, my, that's amazing. The natural systems and the natural world and how things procreate and everything. It's just, it's mind blowing. I mean, the yogis would do this thing where they would take a seed, like a tiny seed from a, a banyan tree, a massive banyan. I mean, banyan trees can become acres in size. One tree, it'll just put down you know, roots off its branches and grow and stuff, just become this massive thing. And you take one seed, within one seed, there is a tree. You can't see it, but it's there. There is a tree. 
And if you plant that and take care of it, that tree will manifest. And each of those trees themselves will produce limitless seeds, each of which contains a tree. And that's all packed into this one little seed. And I'm just looking at it and just blowing my mind. So, you know, there are things that you can do. Like these guys talk about that sort of connect you to the world and connect you to um, other people and get you out of that self-centered headspace. But in terms of the, the process of, of meditation, the process of meditation is not a process of just trying to clear all thoughts and everything from your mind. There are some processes that a person may attempt to do that kind of stuff in preparation for actual meditation. But real meditation means to become immersed in that which is spiritual or transcendental. Most people don't even know what the hell that word means. Transcend. It means literally to like rise above. To, to rise out of the inebriety, the muddy waters of the material consciousness to something that is you know, clearer and transcendent, that is above the limitations of that which is material. It's basically an ocean of spiritual light and happiness, of spiritual power, spiritual energy. And these words that are used in, as mantras contain that quality. They have a spiritual potency or power attached to them. If my body, you know, is all dirty, I've been out working or whatever, and I'm covered with muck or grease or anything, and I want to clean that off, I need to expose myself to a medium, which is water, that can wash away all the dirty stuff. In a similar manner, when a person immerses themselves in spiritual sound. It's like you're immersing yourself in spiritual waters that will cleanse the heart and the mind from all this conditioning and crappy thinking and false ideas that we hold to, cling tightly to as if they're really real. And the effect is as, as these things become cleansed away, we're able to sort of increasingly experience the reality of ourselves as being an eternal spiritual being. It's like you're in this dark, dingy place filled with cobwebs and dust and somebody's throwing the window open and light is beginning to stream in. We've got to get all the windows open. We've got to get rid of all the dust and the cobwebs. We've got to wash it down so it becomes a nice place to live. And that's what we need to do with our mind and our body and become more immersed in, in this, the reality of who we are. So this is really what the process of meditation is about. And, you know, sometimes it's just a question of even taking one of these nice kirtans and playing it and just listening to it or, you know, trying to practice it and stuff. You know, I can, I can share some links with you, you know, just to some simple breathing and um, using a simple mantra like the Goranga mantra and just, you know, people just practicing on their own, following along in a guided meditation. And they'll begin to experience, the, you know, the reality that this stuff is actually powerful. And I can choose to shut it out because I have my own will. And my own will is almost sacred always there it's part of who I am and I can choose to misuse that will and shut out that which is good for me and accept that which is bad and misleading and leads to suffering or I can use that will to throw the doors open and start cleaning the place out let some light and fresh air in I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time and your wisdom I really do feel so blessed to have um, bumped into you and the guys at Meditation New Zealand as well. It's really been, um, it's really changed my life. Doing Japa meditation every day, saying the mantras on the beads and stuff, it's so easy. You just sit down with some beads and you say a mantra, you go around the whole beads and you put all of your focus, all of your attention onto the, the actual sounds of the words. 
and your mind just shuts off it's just gone so any any um, hassle that your mind's giving you it's just it's, it's in the distance it's just gone completely quiet and it gives you such a nice start to the day even just in doing the practice it, yeah. it transforms you and it's you know for the first time in my life I've actually got to the point where it's like I would actually like to quit drugs now even though I've been away from them for years I never my desire never changed you know like every day I was still craving drugs it was just like yeah just clawing at the inside of my mind from the inside it was awful and through doing this I mean you have to replace uh, your taste with a higher taste it's like yeah. you can't just just pure austerity and completely quitting yeah. something without anything to put there it's just painful and empty yeah. isn't it no it's a really good way to put it James you know the development of higher taste is really what it's all about when you're tasting something better that which is lower just loses its appeal so with them we'll put some uh, add some links yeah add some links and we'll put them in for you um check out acharya dasta's youtube channel you've got loads of stuff on there haven't you um, yeah loads of wisdom talks you do regular talks every sunday everything yes put up on there quite a quite a lot of different um topics and some of them are kind of grouped into little playlists um, where there might be three or four or five successive talks on a on a same subject so you get the chance to explore it most of them are not too long so you know they shouldn't be too difficult to to watch i just wanted to say thank you so much again um, if you enjoyed watching this please subscribe to break the chain as well uh, thank you very much and see you next time Hi, Walt. Hi, Walt.